Thank you. It's such a joy to be here. Danny Aiken's one of my spiritual heroes, and um, it's been years that we've wanted to get together and do this, so I'm glad it finally worked out. Although I've got to be honest with you, I was going to say how glad I am to be here, but I've got to be totally honest and say I'm glad to be anywhere after what happened to me in Little Rock, Arkansas. I went to Little Rock to speak at a charity event, and this pastor picked me up from the airport. And he's driving me to the event, and we're chatting along the way, and he said, yeah, he said, I, I told the young woman in the church, I said, Lee Strobel's going to speak tonight. She said, oh, the guy who wrote the case for Christ, is he still living? <laughs> so I'm glad to be anywhere. I'm glad to be alive after that kind of introduction. But... Uh, Leslie and I are especially glad to be here at this great institution. Uh, you know, we recently moved to Houston, Texas. Uh, and you wonder, why would anybody move to Houston, Texas? And I'll give you one word, and you'll go, oh, I get it. Grandchildren. That's why we're in Houston. But um, so we're in Houston, and I'm from Chicago. What do I know about Texas? I don't know anything about Texas. So I went on Amazon, and I bought a book called How to Talk Texan. <laughs> There's a book, How to Talk Texan. So I bought it, and I learned how to talk Texan. First thing I learned, the difference between y'all and all y'all, that all y'all's plural. I never thought about that, but it makes sense when you think about it. But the thing about talking Texan I like the most, in Texas, if you want to say thank you to someone, you can say thank you, or you can say, I appreciate you. Isn't that nice? I appreciate you. Not appreciate it, I appreciate you. And that's what I want to say to you, I appreciate you. Appreciate all y'all is what I want to say. <laughs> I appreciate your commitment to Christ. I appreciate your passion to reach the world with the gospel. Appreciate the intensity with which you uh, bring your studies and your desire to serve God and to make a difference in this world. I just want to say I appreciate you. And as I was thinking and praying about what passage to talk about today, it was kind of an easy decision. As I went to the greatest sermon ever delivered, the Sermon on the Mount, and the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 13, where he looked out at a group 2,000 years ago, but I really believe by extension he was looking down through history and he was looking at you and at me today. And this is what he said. He said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, um, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. But you, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they Put it on a stand. It gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine among men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. What did Jesus mean by those metaphors of salt and light? I think he was saying, look, if you're going to be a follower of mine, I want you to live lives that are like salt, that, that, that make people thirst for God. I want you to live lives that are like light, that shine my message of hope and grace and love and compassion and eternal life, that shine that message into dark areas of despair. And the question I want to ask today is this. What does it look like to be salt and light in the 21st century? 
My buddy Mark Middleberg and I thought long and hard about this. We wrote a book about it, and we were trying to figure out what do we call the book, and we decided to call it The Unexpected Adventure because we really believe if three things are true of you, if you are motivated to engage with people in spiritual conversations, if you make yourself available to do that, if you're prepared to do that, then you never know what's going to happen. could start out to be, you know, an average and routine day. But God might bring an opportunity into your life to have a conversation that could change someone's eternal destination. That's the unexpected adventure of the Christian life. Now, it doesn't always work the way we think it's going to work. I've had some embarrassing times when I've got into spiritual conversations. I had the most embarrassing one a while back. I was down south speaking at a conference with my buddy Mark. And the next day, we had to fly home, and we had to get some lunch or or some breakfast. And we saw one of these Cracker Barrel restaurants. Do you have these here, Cracker Barrels? Well, I've never been to one. So he said, let's give it a try. I said, okay. So we noticed they have rocking chairs on the front porch. They all have the rocking chairs? Okay. So we noticed there's rocking chairs, and people are waiting for tables or sitting in the rocking chairs. So in order for us to get to the front door, we had to walk in front of two people in rocking chairs. First one was a young woman, about 18 years old. Dark hair, dark eyes, young man about the same age sitting next to her. We had to walk in front of them to get to the door. That's not a big deal, right? So we're walking along, and just as I step in front of this young woman, I hear her say, what's a deist? And I thought, I just wrote a book about that. So I turned on my heel. I looked her in the eye. I said, young lady, a deist is someone who believes that God created the universe, and then he walked away. I said, a deist is someone who believes that God sort of wound up the universe like a giant clock and is just letting it tick down. I said, a deist is someone who believes that God is distant and disinterested in us. But I said, that's not what the evidence shows. I began to give her the evidence for God's involvement with the cosmos, God's involvement with humankind. Started to give her all this statistics, all this data. Started talking about the evidence of cosmology and physics and biochemistry and genetics. I'm just laying this stuff on her, and she's looking at me, and her eyes are getting bigger and bigger, and I'm, I'm on a roll now. You can't stop me. Talking about Jesus entering into human history, the incarnation, his miracles, his death. I started to give her the evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. And she's looking at me, and her eyes are getting bigger and bigger. And I turn to my friend. I said, could you believe this? I happen to walk in front of her. She said, what's a deist? My friend said, Lee. She said, buenos dias. <laughs> I wish that were a joke. That's exactly what happened. It's, it, she was freaking out, I will tell you that. She was freaking out. Oh, it was so embarrassing. But you know what the good news was? The ice was already broken. How do you not get into a spiritual conversation at that point? Well, it turned out she was there with her boyfriend for the state track meet. And they took us back to the hotel room where the coach was and all the athletes, and we got to talk about Jesus for about 45 minutes. So it turned out all right. But man, that was embarrassing. You never know. That's the unexpected adventure of the Christian life. What it does, when we live on the evangelistic edge, it raises all other aspects of our Christian life. Our prayer life takes on a whole new dimension because we're praying, God, help me. Help me know what to say. Help me know what to do. It's when our Bible study takes on a whole new dimension because we're not just looking for abstract theological truths. We're looking for something to make, help us you know, reach a friend. It's when our worship takes on a whole new dimension because we're worshiping the God of the second chance who loves our lost friends more than we do. 
And it's when our dependence on God is at its greatest. Because we know that apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, there's nothing we can do in and of ourselves to lead anybody to faith. But that's the unexpected adventure of the Christian life. So how do we live at that evangelistic edge? Well, I started to think, well, what if Jesus physically lived in my house? What would that be like? What would I learn from the master as he would engage with neighbors, as he would go to the grocery store? What would I learn from Jesus? And as I studied his life, there's so much I learned. I just want to mention a few things this morning that I think we can apply today in our lives. The first one is this. I think if Jesus physically lived in my house, before he would talk to his neighbor about their heavenly father, he would talk to his heavenly father about his neighbor. He would pray, right? Of course, before Jesus embarked on anything of significance, he he brought it to the Father in prayer. In fact, have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus' prayers for spiritually lost people continued right up until his final gasps on the cross? As British pastor John Stott pointed out, he said, you know, the imperfect tense of the Greek when it describes the crucifixion of Jesus suggests that Jesus didn't just say it once, that he kept repeating it, perhaps all through the torture of the crucifixion, while the nails were being driven through his hands, while the nails were being driven through his feet. He kept praying, he kept repeating, Father, forgive them, Father, forgive them, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus' prayers for people so spiritually depraved that they were torturing to death the Son of God continued right up until his final gasps on the cross. And as John Stott said, in light of that, How can we justify not praying consistently and fervently and expectantly for lost friends in our life? Now, I know theologically that, you know, my prayers for lost people are not going to force someone against their will to bend their knee to Jesus. I get that, but you know what? I'm just naive enough to believe James when he says the prayers of righteous people make a difference because I've seen it. I've seen it in the most unlikely circumstances. I remember once we were doing a a baptism service at our church in Chicago, and by God's grace, we were baptizing about 600 new believers that day. And so we we told people what baptism was about and so forth, and we explained the gospel, and we said, if you want to bring somebody up with you uh, you when you're baptized, maybe the person led you to the Lord or a spouse, that's fine. So we began to do the baptisms. This woman comes up to me who I'd never met before, and she was about 65 years old, and there was a man with her. And he was a wiry guy, kind of a tough-looking bird, kind of a construction worker type, you know what I mean? So she comes up to me. She has a name tag on. I know she's here to be baptized. I said, you're here to be baptized? She said, yes, I am. I said, have you received Jesus as your Lord and Savior? She said, oh, yes, with all my heart. And I was just going to baptize her, and I didn't usually do this, but I felt I think moved by God to to turn to the man. I said, well, excuse me, sir, are you her husband? He said, well, yes, I am. And I said, have you given your life to Jesus? And he glared at me, and his face kind of screwed up. I thought he was going to hit me or something, and then he burst into tears. In front of thousands of people, he's weeping and sobbing. He says, no, I haven't, but I want to right now. I said, all right, time out. Can we do this? Okay, great. So this guy in front of thousands of people repents of his sin, receives Christ as his Lord and Savior, and I baptize him and his wife together. 
So then after the service, I'm walking down off the platform, and another woman I didn't know comes running up to me, throws her arms around me. She's weeping and sobbing, and all she could say is, nine years, nine years. I said, who are you? What do you mean, nine years? She said, that's my brother who you just led to the Lord and baptized. I have been praying for that man for nine long years. And for nine years, I've seen not one glimmer of interest in God, but look what God did today. And you know what my first thought was? There was a woman who was glad she didn't stop praying in year eight. Who have you stopped praying for? Who have you stopped praying for? You know, so many of us have people we, we used to pray for, maybe someone we went to school with or an old neighbor, whoever it is, a family member, and we prayed for them maybe for a long time. And then after a while, it's almost like we make the decision for them. Oh, they'll never come to faith. And we just give up. And I think that woman would say, don't give up. Don't give up. In fact, here's a question somebody asked me once. I found it very convicting. I don't know if you will, but I did. Here's the question. What if tonight you're alone in your room and Jesus physically appeared to you? And what if he looked at you and he said, I am going to answer every single prayer that you prayed last week? If he said that to you tonight, would there be anybody new in the kingdom of God tomorrow? Are we praying? How are we praying consistently and fervently and expectantly for lost people? Now, it's easy to say that and move on. Okay, yeah, yeah, we got to pray. But I want to I put wheels on this. I want to make this easy. Um, we've started a little movement. It's going to be announced in January. I'm partnering with Focus on the Family as kind of the hub of this. But we have uh, denominations and churches participating in this. I think it's going to be a national movement. Here's what it is. It's so easy. And if you're involved with the church, maybe in your hometown or a church here or whatever, this is a church you can participate in. Here's what we're doing. Eight weeks before next Easter, churches all around the country are going to ask their people between now and Easter, eight weeks, let's all agree to pray for one lost friend for one minute at one o'clock every day between now and Easter. One person one minute at one o'clock. And one of the things to pray is an opportunity and receptivity to invite them to come to Easter services at church. Because if a non-believer is going to come to church, it's going to be a Christmas or Easter. Can you imagine if we had tens of thousands of churches around North America doing this? It would be because of the time zones, prayer would ripple across the country every day. One o'clock Eastern, one o'clock Central, one o'clock Mountain, one o'clock Pacific, one o'clock Hawaii, you know, rippling across. Who knows what God might do? We did this at our church in Chicago, and I got the idea from South uh, Korea that had done this years ago. And um, one guy raised his hand and said, can I pray for two people at two o'clock for two? No, no. It's always one overachiever in any group. No. We're going to all agree to pray for one lost friend for one minute at 1 o'clock. And we gave people a, a little business card that said 111 on it to remind them to pray every day. And we had a line on that, and we said, write down the name of the person you're praying for. But this is not to show them. This is for you to, you know, remind yourself. 
But this one young woman in our church showed it to the person she's praying for. Look, see your name? I'm praying for you, one friend, for one minute at 1 o'clock every day because I love you, and I want you to know Jesus the way I do. And her friend said, okay, yeah, I appreciate that. Within two weeks, that unsaved young woman was in the shower getting ready to go to work with the water cascading down on her, and the Holy Spirit seized her soul, and she got down on her knees, and she received Jesus as her Lord and Savior. And as a Baptist, I love this, you know, a conversion and a baptism at the same time. This is, that is American efficiency. Come on, let's get with it. But I brought this up at Focus on the Family, and they said, let's do this. And so we're going to announce a national initiative. It's all volunteer. We're all volunteering to do this. Um, We're going to announce it in January. And if you have connections with pastors or whatever, encourage them to join us. Who knows what God might do if we all prayed for one person at one minute at 1 o'clock before Easter. But I think if Jesus physically lived in my house, that's the first thing I'd notice. He'd be praying. Second thing I'd notice is that Jesus would let his neighbors know that his door is always open for questions. You got a doubt? Got a question? Got a hesitation? Come on in. Bring the coffee. We'll sit on the floor. We'll talk about it. I mean, I can't think of any example in the New Testament where Jesus slam-dunked anybody that came to him with a sincere question. Can you? In fact, my favorite example of this is John the Baptist. If anybody should have been totally convinced of the identity of Jesus being the Son of God, it was John the Baptist. He once pointed to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He baptized Jesus. He saw the heavens open up. He heard the voice of the Father saying, This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. John the Baptist once pointed to Jesus and said, I have seen and I testify this is the Son of God. But what happens? He gets arrested. He gets put in prison. Question, what happens to a lot of us when tough times come? Doubts begin to creep in, don't they? And so here here, here he is. He's in prison, and and he's starting to have some hesitations. I I sense he's not 100% there anymore. And dare I even suggest that he may have had some doubts. But what does he do? He gets a couple friends together. He said, look, go track Jesus down and just ask him point blank, are you the one we've been waiting for or are we to wait for somebody else? So his buddies tracked down, hey, Jesus, you know John. Well, he got busted, and now he's freaking out. So would you just tell us point blank, are you the one we've been waiting for or are we to wait for somebody else? Now, here's the deal. How How does Jesus react to this? Does Jesus get angry? Does Jesus say, how dare John have the temerity of all people to to ask a question about my identity? No. Jesus says to those followers of John in Luke 7, verse 22, quote, go back to John and tell him what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. In other words, Go back to John and tell him about the evidence you've seen with your own eyes that convinces you that I am the one I claim to be. So they go back and they tell John, but here's the deal. Has this now disqualified John from any role in the kingdom of God because he dared to ask a question? No. In fact, it's after this incident that Jesus gets up before a group and he says, among those born of women, there's no one greater than John. 
John, the guy who dared to ask a question. Friend, it is okay for us as followers of Jesus to ask questions. It's even okay for us to have some doubts. As long as we do what John did and we pursue answers. Because you know what? Uh, a lot of our friends, we're told in 1 Peter 3.15, if we're followers of Jesus, we need to help our friends find answers to those spiritual sticking points that are holding them up in their journey toward God. So many of our friends just have a couple of questions or doubts, and, and if we can help them get resolution of that, they can make great progress in their journey toward God, and we're told to do that. But you know what the good news is? We have a defensible faith. We have a faith that stands up to the toughest questions and doubts. I've seen this demonstrated a thousand times. I remember when um, I was a pastor in Chicago, I was a, a teaching pastor at a church, and um, one of my friends from my days as an atheist was the national spokesman for American Atheists Incorporated. That was his job. And so after I became a Christian, of course, I tried to share Jesus with him, and we'd get in these little arguments with each other. And finally, one day, he said to me, Strobel, you Christians are all alike. I said, what do you mean? He said, oh, you'll give the case for Christ. You'll give the evidence for God, but you won't then give the evidence against God and just let people make up their own minds. I said, oh, yeah? I'll tell you what. You go get the smartest atheist on planet Earth, and I will fly him to our church, and I will allow him to stand on our platform and proclaim the case for atheism. But I'm going to get a Christian, and that Christian is going to present the case for Christ, and then he's going to debate your atheist, and we'll just let people make up their own minds. He said, you wouldn't do that. I said, oh, yeah? We shook hands on it? My very next thought, I probably should have asked the senior pastor if this was okay. <laughs> too late, too late. This ball was rolling. This thing took on a life of its own. This was way back in the early 90s. Nobody was doing debates back then. We had Chicago Tribune did four advanced articles on this debate. Talk radio, talk television, chattering about this debate. Why? Because the church said, we're not afraid to have an intellectual shootout. We're not afraid to put our faith to the test. I started to get phone calls from, from radio stations around the country. Can we broadcast this debate live? Sure. Pretty soon we had 117 radio stations coast to coast going to broadcast this event live. One radio network sent commentators like it was a prize fight or something. I was a jab by the Christian, I think the atheists on the ropes. <laughs> it was unbelievable. The night of the debate came, no kidding, traffic was gridlocked within two miles of our church. We opened the doors to our auditorium. People ran down the aisles to get a seat. When's the last time you saw someone run into a church? We had 7,778 people show up. We overflowed our auditorium. We had closed-circuit television hooked up to other rooms on our campus. We had coast-to-coast -coast radio about to go on the air. And I'm pacing backstage before we begin. I'm going to be the moderator. I'm nervous. And uh, one of our elders came up to me and said, uh, so, Strobel, we are going to win this, aren't we? <laughs> so the debate begins, and we chose as our representative of Christianity, uh, one of the greatest defenders of the faith in the world today, uh, Dr. William Lane Craig, to earn PhDs. He gets up, 
He gives the most powerful 25-minute summation of the evidence for the existence of God and the truth of Christianity that you have ever heard. I wanted to cheer, but I was a moderator. I had to be neutral. Thank you, Dr. Craig, and now the atheist, Professor Zindler. <laughs> Good luck, buddy. So this guy, they chose their best guy. We didn't want to get accused of choosing a bad atheist. We said, American atheist, you choose your best guy. He gets up, and he's standing behind the podium, and he's about to open his mouth. But we didn't tell him one thing. Not that he would have cared, but we didn't let him know that right where he was standing, underneath the platform was a room. And that room was filled for the entire two and a half hours of the debate with Christians who were praying that the case for Christ would go out with all his convicting power and the case for atheism would be recognized for the bankrupt philosophy that it is. And if you've seen that debate, it's on YouTube, you can watch it. You know God answered that prayer because we had people vote. What's your spiritual condition as you come in tonight? Who won the debate? What's your spiritual condition as you leave? Initially, we just took the ballots of people who came in as atheists, as agnostics, as skeptics. Just among that group, having heard the case for Christ and the case for atheism, over 82% said the case for Christ was by far the most compelling. And 47 people walked in as confirmed atheists, heard both sides, and walked out as followers of Jesus Christ. And you know what else? Not one person became an atheist. I'm just saying. And if you think that debate's a fluke, go online and watch a debate a few years ago between William Lane Craig, the Christian, and Christopher Hitchens, one of the top four atheists in the world, the guy who wrote the book, God is Not Great. Take a look at that debate. Let me quote to you the atheist commentator's evaluation of that debate. This is the atheist uh, uh, viewpoint of that debate, quote, William Lane Craig, the Christian, spanked Christopher Hitchens like a foolish child. I'm just saying. Friends, we have an unfair advantage in the marketplace of ideas. We have truth on our side. That's a big deal. That is, so what's my takeaway? Am I saying, therefore, let's all go out and debate atheists? No. I mean, I'm not a debater. Uh, God has, has given skills to a certain group of people. That's their ministry. God bless them. I've been involved with putting those debates on. But I'm not a debater. You're probably not a debater. I think for you and me, the key word is probably not debate. I think it's dialogue. I think it's conversations. I think it's relationships. I think it's friendships. It's when we have a friendship with a person who's far from God, and we value them as someone who matters to the Father, and we do more listening than talking, and we ask more questions than give dogmatic answers, and we respect the fact that they're on a journey, may not be as far along as we are, but they're on a journey, that's good. I think that is what we're called to do. That's why I think a new kind of apologetics is important in our world today. The old apologetics was lining up people against a wall and machine gunning them with facts. I think today it's about relationships, conversations. It's not trying to pretend we're smarter than we are. It's not trying to pretend we have every answer to every question. 
more listening than talking, more loving than condemning. I think that is what apologetics looks like in the 21st century. My friend Jay Warner Wallace, a, a homicide detective, atheist, who became a Christian because he investigated Christianity uh, from a, a, a detective's perspective, said that evangelism in the 21st century is spelled apologetics. Now, that's an exaggeration, but I think the point is well made. If we're to reach our increasingly skeptical culture, we need to be ready and able to engage with them in a rational conversation about where the evidence really points. And we can have confidence that our faith is well supported by the facts and the data. And I think if Jesus lived in my house, he'd let the neighbors know, hey, my door is open. Come on over. Let's talk about the issues that you have. Third thing I think if Jesus lived in my house is he wouldn't just share his faith, but he would show his faith. He wouldn't just share it, but he'd show it. In other words, talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. Jesus did not just say that he loved the world. He showed it. How? By being a servant. He served those with leprosy by curing their illness. He served those who were blind by restoring their sight. And then in the greatest act of servanthood in the history, he died on the cross as a ransom for many. And when we sacrificially serve as Jesus did, it cracks open the hardest of hearts. People seemingly the most impervious to the gospel whose hearts are cracked open by simple acts of servanthood. You know, I live in Houston, and, and um, Leslie and I were there when Hurricane Harvey hit. And uh, there was a man in our town named Morris. He was a retired Jewish engineer and lawyer for one of the oil companies. And his house was flooded. He's retired. He's like 80 years old. He was so depressed. He was so distraught. What do you do? Your home is destroyed. Nobody from the synagogue came to help him. But someone from the local Methodist church did. A woman and her daughter. Her daughter was named Grace. And they came and they helped them fix their house and they, um, they made them meals and they befriended them and they became very close. And after they had helped, after many weeks, um, one day the woman and her daughter, Grace, sent a little note to Morris, a note of encouragement. And Morris opened it up, his wife was there, and, and Morris opened it up and read this note, and he said, oh, look, they've sent me a photograph. And he looked at the photograph, and he said, oh, why would they send me a picture of Jesus? And his wife said, what do you mean? He said, they sent me a picture of Jesus, look. And she looked at it, and she said, that's not Jesus, that's grace. Oh, you're right. They had been like Jesus to the, him so much he actually saw in her face an image of Jesus Christ. So Morris and I got together. He had a million questions. And you know what? My door's open for questions. Come on in. We talked, answered his questions. Last Sunday, Morris was baptized, a new follower of Jesus Christ. And it all began with a 14-year-old girl named Grace and her mom that reached out in a moment of need and met that need in the name of Jesus. And I love the way Jesus caused him to see his face 
in that photograph. It's a little bit of a miracle, I thought. But you know, um, if we were to watch Jesus as he walked through our neighborhoods and through our life, I think he would have kind of a, a compassion radar looking for opportunities to serve, looking for ways. It might, you know, it might be something simple. And we can do that. We can have a compassion radar. We can walk around life looking for opportunities to serve. Um, it might be a single mom who lives down the block. And if we said, hey, I'll babysit your kids for the next four Friday nights so you can have some time to yourself, what a gift that would be. Or an elderly woman down the block that, that um, just needs someone to take her to the grocery store once a week. We can do that. Or a kid down the block who's got a basketball hoop in his driveway but nobody to shoot baskets with. I can shoot baskets with you. I think if we walked through life with that compassion radar, God would bring us to a bunch of unexpected adventures that could change people's lives. Finally, the fourth thing that I think if Jesus lived in my house, I would learn from him is that above all else, Jesus would be authentic in the way he related to his neighbors. Jesus would be authentic. In other words, he wouldn't just communicate the gospel, he would embody the gospel. There would be a consistency between his beliefs and his behavior, between his character and his creed. And the question is, what about us? What do people see in our lives? Because I can virtually guarantee you something. If your friends back home, your neighbors, people you encounter in a part-time job, if people you encounter know that you are a student here, if they know that you are a follower of Jesus Christ, I can virtually guarantee you they are scanning your life with a different kind of radar, not the compassion radar, it's the hypocrisy radar. Beep, beep, beep. You know they're watching you, right? All these non-believers you encounter, they're watching. What are they looking for? False piety. What are they looking for? Kind of a holier-than-thou attitude. What are they looking for? Someone who posts on a phony Christian happy face and pretends like everything's always great when we know it's not. What do they see? I want to read you a bit of a letter I received from a woman who had been poisoned against God and the church because when she was growing up, she was abused by people who claim to be Christians. Let me read you what she wrote me. She said, Lee, the Christianity I grew up with was so confusing to me even as a child. People said one thing, but they did another. They appeared very spiritual in public, but in private, they were abusive. What they said and what they did never fit. There was such a discrepancy. So listen, I came to hate Christianity and did not want to be associated with a church. Friends, that is the power of inauthentic Christians to repel people from God. You know, Jesus used these metaphors of salt and light in a positive way, but here's the ugly truth. There are a lot of Christians who are like salt in a wound. There are a lot of Christians who are like headlights that glare on a highway and force people to turn their head and look the other way, and that's what happened to Maggie. But then guess what happened? One day, she was reading the Chicago Tribune, and she saw an article about a debate that was coming up between an atheist and a Christian, the debate I told you about. So she said, I'm going to go to that debate because I want to see the Christian humiliated. Well, the Christian won the debate. So then Maggie started writing me letters 
Dear, dear Lee, because I was a moderator of the debate, Dear Lee, here are the first 10 reasons I don't believe in God. Boom, boom, boom. So I'd write her back. Dear Maggie, so glad you're asking these questions. Let me see if I can help. I thought, wait a minute, this is silly. I called her up. I said, Maggie, we have little groups in our church for people like you who don't believe. Um, it's half a dozen uh, people who are not Christians, led by a Christian couple, and they kind of go on a spiritual journey together. Why don't you join one of these groups? You can make some friends. You can get your questions answered. She said, oh, that'd be great. So she joined one of our spiritual discovery groups. So I want to read to you what she wrote about that experience. Because Jesus told you and me to be salt and light to non-believers, and, and, and a question that comes up in our minds is, well, what does that look like? Um, what do they want from us? What are they looking for from us? Well, she explains it so well. So listen to what she wrote about that experience of being in that group. She said, Lee, when I came to church in my small group, here's the first thing she needed. I needed gentleness. I needed to be able to ask any question. I needed to be treated with respect and validated. I needed to have my questions taken seriously. Most of all, listen to this, most of all, I just needed to see people whose actions match what they say. I'm not looking for perfect, but I am looking for real. Integrity is the word that comes to mind. I need to hear real people talk about real life, and I need to know if God is a part of real life. Does he care about the wounds I have? Does he care that I need a place to live? Can I ever be a whole and a healthy person? Well, I've asked questions like these of the Christians who lead my group, and I've not been laughed at or ignored or invalidated. I've not been pushed or pressured in any way. She said, I just don't understand the caring I've received from the leaders of my group. I don't understand it. They don't seem afraid of questions. They don't say things like, you just have to have faith, or you just need to pray more. They don't seem to be afraid to tell who they really are. They just seem genuine. And then she wrote a poem, and she sent it to me. She said, I wrote this poem for the two Christians who lead my group. But I thought, no, no, no. This is a poem every follower of Jesus on planet Earth needs to hear. Why? Because this is the unedited heart's cry of the very kind of person who Jesus has told us to be salt and light to. So I want you to listen to these words that are not mine, written by a 22-year-old nurse, poisoned against God, poisoned against the church, who looks at you as a follower of Jesus and says these words. Do you know, I mean, do you understand that you represent Jesus to me. I mean, do you know? Do you understand that when you treat me with gentleness, it raises the question in my mind, well, maybe he is gentle too. Maybe he isn't someone who laughs when I get hurt. And do you know? Do you understand that when you listen to my questions and you don't laugh, that I think, well, what if Jesus is interested in me too? I mean, do you know? 
Do you understand that when I hear you talk honestly about arguments and conflicts and scars from your past, that I think, well, maybe I am just a regular person instead of a bad, no good little girl who deserves abuse. If you care, then I think maybe he cares. And then there's this flame of hope that burns inside of me, and for a while I'm afraid to breathe because it might go out. I mean, do you know? Do you understand that your words are his words? That your face is his face to someone like me? Please, be who you say you are. Please, God, don't let this be another trick. Please, let it be real this time. Please. I mean, do you know? Do you understand that you and you and you, that you represent Jesus to me? Well, I remember reading that for the first time in my office at the church, and I cried. Because what came into my mind were not all the ways I've been like Jesus to people, but all the ways that I was too busy doing the professional work of clergy to give a rip about the guy who lived a nine-iron shot from my house who's headed for hell. I said, this has got to stop. So I called up Maggie. I said, Maggie, thank you for that poem. I found it very powerful, very convicting. And I'm speaking this week at the church. I'm wondering if you'd give me permission to read it, because I think everybody ought to hear the poem. And she said, oh, Lee, haven't you heard? And my heart sunk. I thought, oh, no. What inauthentic Christian has she met now that's repelled her again from God? I said, no, Meg, I haven't heard. What happened? She said, no, it's a good thing. I said, what? She said, Lee, on Tuesday night, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. I said, Maggie, that's fantastic, that's wonderful, but oh my goodness, you were so far from God. To have you come to faith, that's fantastic, but you've got to answer a question for me. What brought you across the line of faith? You were running the other way. You were poisoned against God and the church. What five facts did you learn that convinced you the resurrection is an actual event of history that convinced you to become a Christian? See, it wasn't like that with me. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. What ten facts did you learn? that convinced you that the Bible really is the Word of God. So it wasn't like that with me. I said, well, then what happened? Well, now she's embarrassed. She just kind of shrugged over the phone. She said, well, I, I just met a whole bunch of people at church who were like Jesus to me. I thought, what a lesson. What a lesson for someone like me that likes to pin somebody up against the wall. I'll give you 20 reasons for the resurrection. Don't like those, I'll give you 30 more. But, but wait a minute, think about this. She came to the debate. She heard the case for Christ presented by a skilled and knowledgeable apologist and put to the test in a, in a debate with a skilled and knowledgeable atheist. She heard the evidence, but what was it that God used to bring her across the line of faith? I know the Christian couple that led her group. They are simple people who love God and love others. They loved her into the kingdom. That's what they did. And you know what the good news of that is? We can do this. We, can, we don't have to have a PhD in theology. We can, we, if we 
We can pray for people, can't we? We can help them find answers to their tough questions. We can do that. We can um, serve them and find a way to bring the love of Christ to them in a tangible way. But the easiest thing of all is we can be authentic. We don't have to pretend we're smarter than we are. We don't have to pretend we're more spiritual than we are. We can just be sinners saved by grace. And if we love God and love people, he will take us on a series of unexpected adventures that will be the joy of our lives. And I just want to end with my favorite unexpected adventure that God has taken me on. I was a pretty new Christian, and I was still a newspaper editor in Chicago. And it was the end of a long day, and I was packing my stuff to go home. And it was just before Easter, and I felt very convicted by the Holy Spirit in a very specific way. I felt just in my heart, I felt I need to go into the business office of the newspaper and invite my atheist friend to Easter services at our church. I just felt very specifically compelled to do that. So I'm thinking, this is great. If God is really pushing me to do this, he's probably going to repent right now. This is going to be awesome. So I was full of confidence. So I I walked over to the business office. I, I, I walked in. I looked around. All I see is my friend behind his desk. I said, thank you, Lord. So I went up to him. I said, hey, how you doing? He said, I'm doing well. I said, hey, Easter's coming up. He said, Strobel, you know I'm an atheist. I don't observe Easter. I said, I know, I know, but Easter's when we remember the resurrection of Jesus. He said, oh, he wasn't resurrected. I said, actually, there's good historical evidence he was. I began to give him some of the evidence for Jesus having returned from the dead and proved that he's the Son of God. And I went on for a few minutes that way, and I could see this wasn't helping. So now I'm kind of panicking. So I'm thinking, what do I say now? So so I kind of stepped back. I said, well, let me ask you this. Do you have any questions about God? He said, no. Oh, okay. (laughs) Let me ask you this. Do you ever think about God? He said, no. Oh, okay. Um, Well, wait a minute. I said, you like music, right? He said, oh, yeah, I love music. We have great music at our church. Why don't you and your wife come with Leslie and me to church this Easter? I think you'll enjoy the music. And he looked at me and he said, I don't want to go to your stupid church. Hey, no problem. Listen, you know where my office is? If you ever have a question, I'll, I'll see you later. And I walked out and thought, what was that all about? Did I get my wires crossed or something? Why did I feel so specifically compelled to go and to to talk about the evidence for the resurrection, to invite him to Easter services, and this guy just shut me down? And can I tell you something? This bothered me for years because to this day, he's still an atheist. But let me tell you the rest of the story. Several years later, by then I was a pastor, And I had just spoken on a Sunday morning, and I walked down off the platform, and this guy came up to me I didn't know, and he said, could I shake your hand and thank you for the spiritual influence you've had on my life? I said, it's real nice, but who are you? He said, let me tell you my story. He said, a few years ago, I lost my job, and I didn't have any money in the bank. I thought I was going to lose my house. I thought I was going to lose my car. I didn't know what to do. I needed a job for a while to earn a paycheck. So he said, I called a friend of mine that ran a newspaper. And I said, do you have any odd jobs I can do for a while to earn some money? And the guy said, well, can you tile floors? And I thought, yeah, I've tiled our bathroom. I can tile floors. I can do that. 
And the guy said, well, we have some tiling that needs to be installed and repaired at the newspaper, and if you can do that, we can pay you for a while. So he said, I went to work at the newspaper. He said, one day, not long before Easter, I was in the business office of the newspaper, and I was on my hands and knees behind this big desk working on some tile on the floor, and you walked in the door, and I don't even think you knew I was there. And you start talking to this guy about God, and you started inviting him to church, and you started to give him the evidence that Jesus rose from the dead, and this guy was shutting you down. But my heart's beating fast, and I'm working on this tile, listening to this stuff, and I'm thinking, I need God. I need to go to church. He said, as soon as you left, I called my wife. I said, we're going to church this Easter. She said, what? I said, yeah. He said, we came to your church that Easter. I came to faith. My wife came to faith, and our teenage son came to faith, and I just wanted to thank you. And I thought, this is a new form of evangelism, ricochet evangelism. (laughs) You share your faith, it bounces off a hard heart. You don't know where it's going to go. Friends, this is the unexpected adventure of the Christian life. We don't want to miss this. This is our one opportunity. We can't do this in heaven. This is our opportunity to go on unexpected adventures that will be the joy of our lives. So let me pray for you. Father, I do pray that you would take each of us on unexpected adventures, days that start out normal and routine, and yet you intervene. And we have an opportunity to have a conversation with a spiritually confused person and point them towards you. We thank you that for whatever reason you choose to use us in this redemptive drama that you are unfolding around planet Earth. May we seize this opportunity for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.